0: the nfx podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world if you enjoyed this episode let us know by leaving a rating a review and by sharing with friends you think should listen you can also discover more content like other episodes transcripts essays and videos by following us on twitter at nfx and visiting nfx.com and now on the show
1: So it's a real pleasure today to be joined by Dean Levin from the Stanford GSB on the NFX podcast today. So I've got to know the Dean over the last couple of years as part of serving on the GSB management board. And also I have super fond memories of my time back in the GSB from a few years ago now, and also get to go back there and co-teach a couple of cases there. So Dean, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you. You're a distinguished academic and economist and now Dean of the Business School. And, and Stanford is really just at the heart of Silicon Valley since Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley. So you're sitting on this fascinating ecosystem and environment about technology, about entrepreneurship, and society at large. So let's kick off, John. I know you're insanely busy right now. You're preparing for the class 2021 graduation in just a few days. So thanks for joining us. And so maybe we'll start there, like give us a preview of the upcoming celebration. Is there a theme that you'll focus on at all during this graduation time?
2: Pete, thanks for having me on the show and it's a real pleasure. And thanks for everything you do for Stanford and for the GSB. By the way, you can call me John. So graduation. So we've had a you know a year that really has been unlike any other. And for much of the year, our students, although they were able to live on campus, have had to study virtually, and the opportunities for interaction have been much less. This quarter has been quite a bit better with the ability to do hybrid teaching, and people can interact outside and so forth. But we're really looking forward to getting to bring the students and families together to graduate next week, and we're going to do it outside in Stanford's beautiful Frost Amphitheater. And everyone gets to walk across the stage and be cheered by their classmates. normally shake their hands and give them a diploma. We'll have to pass on that this year with COVID, but it'll be much the same. The theme I'm thinking about for this year for graduation, I haven't written my remarks fully yet, but the theme that's on my mind is optimism. And not optimism in the sense of being Pollyannish about all the challenges that we've come through over the year, but optimism in the sense of as a great leadership characteristic and being able to stay positive and focused even when there's a lot of adversity, which is something that you know our students and everyone in the world really has gone through over the last period. And now with the world starting to emerge from the pandemic, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, both about the world, but also about the prospects and the opportunities for this particular graduating class, which is a very, very special class.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm recollecting back to my own graduation. And I was fortunate enough to be there in 2005. And Steve Jobs gave the commencement speech, which is the stay hungry, stay foolish speech, which is a different kind of optimism. But, you know, that's a sort of iconic moment in commencement speeches. So I'm looking forward to kind of rereading your remarks at some point.
2: If I can say something as great as, you know, you can only connect the dots looking backward. That was a great moment in commencement speeches when he sort of, everything is clear about your trajectory in retrospect. The future always looks uncertain and is hard to chart
1: out. Indeed. So you mentioned this sort of being a very special class. How would you characterize this class? And maybe it's, you know, perhaps generalized about the sort of the graduating classes across universities in 2021. You know, what are you seeing perhaps as different this year than in prior classes?
2: I think all students this year, and certainly for our graduating class, but I think it's true, as you say more broadly, they've been called on to be hugely adaptive and resilient, and they haven't gotten the experience that they expected or signed up for. They've gotten something very different. But of course, it is the experience that they got. It's the hand that was dealt to them, and you can't control that, but you do get to control what it is you make of your circumstances. And so in that sense, I think the students at the GSB, I have great admiration and respect for the way that they have handled themselves this year in working hard in the classroom and making the most of virtual teaching in staying connected and forming new connections to each other in seeking out opportunities. And I think that experience, although they might not choose to repeat it, if given the option, will serve them incredibly well in their lives, that ability to deal with the unexpected, and then to figure out, you know, how is it that you're going to make something great out of a challenging situation?
1: And just what do you think's next? I mean, perhaps particularly the students you work with, is there a sort of expectation around founding companies? I think, you know, remote work for many people has inspired them to think differently about their career choices. Do you think many of them will start companies or join technology companies? I think the COVID has shone a light on the, you know, the future of biology and, you know, technology and that sort of marvel of vaccines. I'm curious if there's any particular focus or theme you're seeing in where the talent is going post-graduation.
2: It's such an interesting question. I think, you know, many ways this is a great time to be coming out of school because the world has been so disrupted and there's so much change going on in technology society, business, it's exactly the time that you want to be setting out and looking for new opportunities because it is a time of rapid change and a time of disruption. So I think that the opportunities are many for the students who are graduating. When I look at what people are interested in, well students go in all different directions. That's one of the wonderful things about the school. People go off and do all kinds of things after they graduate in all different industries and roles and then often change them over the course of their career, much like you were an entrepreneur and then became an investor. And the students, again, and I'm sure in this graduating class, will go in many, many different directions. But I do think there's incredible opportunities right now because of what has happened during COVID with the the whole acceleration of digital and online the changes in work that are coming and everyone is thinking about how to have more flexibility in the workplace. There's going to be great opportunities there. The healthcare, we're seeing a lot of interest of students, particularly the entrepreneurial minded students in healthcare fintech lots of changes in payments so i think the opportunity is right now you know i guess it'll be one of those things where we'll look back in a few years it'll be easier to connect the dots but it does seem like this is a time of really wonderful opportunity
1: for students setting out on the next phase of their careers are you sensing there are more entrepreneurs today than in the past? i think just from my own experience and generally looking at sort of graduate students It feels like as a percentage, more and more people are starting companies and business schools are almost, you know, uh, incubating kind of ideas. I don't know if that's quite the right word. They're basically sort of helping founders forge ideas rather than perhaps joining the traditional big banks or management consultancies. Do you see that trend increasing? And Has it increased this year?
2: We have seen over say the last 20 years at the GSB, a very significant change in careers, which includes entrepreneurship, but is broader. That is, it's really about students, many students searching for jobs that are somewhat idiosyncratic and unique. And they find through calling people up, not necessarily advertised jobs, jobs that they just find through network search, as opposed to the very traditional business school model of on-campus interviewing with uh large organizations. And I think that's perhaps somewhat distinctive to Stanford. And we see that in all different industries. We see it in finance. We see it in uh, technology. Of course, we have lots of interest in students going to small companies and startups, both in Silicon Valley and then also increasingly around the country and around the world. If you look at our entrepreneurship numbers, when you were a student, and you'd have to tell me if you were lonely As an entrepreneur at the school, although, of course, their entrepreneurship is quite part of the ethos of Stanford going back many years today, somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of our class ends up founding a company right out of the business school, which is really quite a robust number in the class and it makes for a very strong community. By the way, most of our peer schools are more like one or 2%. So we're maybe five or six at the high end. So that is a somewhat distinctive feature. It's still a relatively small fraction of the class. though. It means 80 to 85% are doing other things. And I think what is really special about Stanford is whether people decide to become entrepreneurs or not, you just can't help it. Everyone walks away from the campus with that sort of spark of innovation and entrepreneurial thinking that they take wherever they go you know that's a really wonderful thing about the school and you know i think it has uh served us well over
1: many years it's um I mean, just recollecting into my own experience, I think when I was there, it was certainly 5 to 10%, no more than that, and it definitely felt as more of a kind of outlier. You know, there's a lot of folks that perhaps sort of critique their MBA programs, and I think the sort of mistake that I've seen from personal experience is that MBAs today are not about training people to be soldiers in the corporate American businesses, which is sort of a misnomer. It's that GSB really helped me to, you know, attend sessions to think like an entrepreneur, you know, much like I think other folks like, and I think how to build businesses, much like folks go to Y Combinator and get that experience there or other environments. So I'm absolutely not surprised.
2: I think you make a good point, which is that sometimes people do construe a business school too narrowly to think of it as sort of rote training for uh, very defined roles in large organizations. And it's just nothing like that. A business school is really about in a sense, I sometimes think of it in contrast to my own experience as a PhD student, which was like being handed this high-powered microscope to zoom in on a particular problem that I tried to become the world's expert on. And I think about the students coming to the GSB, and it's like we're handing them a telescope so they can just see A huge expanse of opportunities out there that it broadens perspectives it opens you up to all different roles different paths you might take in your career and gives you the ability to think critically to think strategically to think in innovative ways and some of the practical skills that you'll need to be successful all different organizations and roles and in that way it's just an incredibly powerful educational experience
1: And just thinking specifically about the early stage entrepreneurs listening to the podcast, what do you think that are today's major opportunities that you'd like them to tackle? I think that's a better question for you than for me, actually.
2: (laughs) So I want to hear your answer, too, but I'm happy to go first. We're seeing a lot of interest in things like fintech, the the whole uh, change in payments and opportunities, you know, really across the board there. Those are, by the way, not that's not just the U.S. That's all over the world. Asia, Latin America, I mean, completely global healthcare, which you earlier mentioned, again, Lots of interest there. I'm hoping that some of our students are going to get interested and they are, some of them are in thinking about the transition to a low carbon economy. I don't know who it's going to be or what the exact opportunities are, but I think that's such an important problem for the world that needs innovation and needs the, the kind of thinking that our students can bring to bear on it. I went for a walk around campus a few weeks ago with one of our graduating students who is starting a company that applies artificial intelligence to battery design that he has been working on with a faculty member in the Stanford School of Engineering. And it just reminded me that so many of the interesting companies that come out of Stanford are places where there's an advance in technology and a student with a great idea for a business model and the leadership and the product design feel that allows some sort of pairing to take place that creates a really great business. So that's always an exciting place for entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, just to answer the question, I would feel similarly. I think the those opportunities about healthcare, climate, and fintech, and just the way that money and whether that's crypto or otherwise, is going to change. I think there's also just the notion of geography has changed substantially. And so how does that impact our lives? You know, whether that's where we live, where we work, where we study. I think that is just fertile ground and supply chains, you know, how we think about transportation. I think we really haven't sort of grokked the way that our sense of geography has changed as we kind of become more and more virtual in everything that we do. Yeah. Two years ago, who would have thought that the big
2: problem in the world would be supply chain optimization and logistics? I mean, we've just seen how important that is over the last 18 months of the pandemic. And also with the, you know, you point out the changes in work, you know, that's an area where the uncertainty of just about how that will play out after the pandemic and how much people will work remotely and what the effect will be on cities and on different types of jobs and on the labor market and on how organizations function. I think that's such an interesting question. We have a class at the GSB that we started during the pandemic, a leadership for society class that uh, Brian Lowry started that has a theme this year The theme theme around race and power. And next year, the theme is around reimagining work after COVID. It'll be live streamed, actually open to people. And there's a podcast as well. And I'm really excited to just have a lot of discussion about that next year, because it really is something that could transform the work experience for so many people.
1: Yeah, and work experience and also opportunities for people that perhaps wouldn't otherwise have them, which is just terrific. Let's hope that
2: happens. You know, I think even here in the Bay Area, that was such an expensive place to live, giving people who, you know, might have to be doing a lot of commuting, if there's a way to give them more flexibility and, you know, allow them to devote their time to more productive things than driving around in traffic, that would be a real improvement in people's lives.
1: Yeah, just talking about entrepreneurial students, I guess, what are the perhaps you look at? 10, 15 years ago today versus perhaps in the future, are there any sort of characteristics or constants as well as changes in what you see in founders today versus the past or the future? Well, I think one big
2: change is we have a much more diverse founder base at the school now an entrepreneurial community. Even a few years ago, as one example, there was a big gender gap in entrepreneurship rates at the school. So even though our class was... 40% women. The number of entrepreneurs was very small, more than two to one, probably male, female. And today that gap has been steadily closing. And I think that's a tremendously positive development. And I think the faculty who teach entrepreneurship have done a great job in uh, helping to make that happen. I think there's a lot of commonality too over time. The willingness to try something new, the ambition, the creativity. We probably have better structured support now for entrepreneurship at the GSB because we have classes like Startup Garage instead of having having to figure it out. But people still come to the school who are interested in entrepreneurship and still get turned on to it while they're here. And and that's true today. And it was true, it was true back in 19, the nineteen sixties when we only had one class in entrepreneurship and Phil Knight came and wrote the business plan for Nike. So that's a enduring constant.
1: Do you sense that I mean this may be a reflection on more the generation than perhaps the school, but there's a sense of more mission orientated folks in terms of just looking at the social contract or societal contract they're looking to make part of their startup?
2: For sure. There's no question. We have a program in social entrepreneurship, which is a wonderful program. And in many ways, it has sort of come together with our traditional entrepreneurship programs. That is to say, it's come together from both directions, by the way. So we have students who want to pursue social ventures who have found that they believe the way to do it is often not through necessarily founding something with capital that is social impact capital, but maybe to go with traditional capital because they have access to different types of investors and so forth. And at the same time, I think many of the students who are thinking about entrepreneurial ventures come in with a problem that they want to solve. And often that problem is a problem about education, about access to health care, about creating opportunity. It's a very socially minded Problem and then the question is what is the solution? What's the entrepreneurial solution that's going to get at this problem? And I think it's a great development that people are thinking coming at what's the problem I want to solve and coming at that from a social orientation and then using all the business skills that they have and the entrepreneurial skills to try to craft a solution. Yeah,
1: and just as uh, what you know, you think about the expectations of perhaps. You know, startup leaders and graduating classes in general is like, how have the expectations changed? And this may be more of a broader business question, but, the you know, when you're training leaders today, like what's the stuff that perhaps you felt is increasingly important, perhaps that isn't obvious from the outside? Oh, I think the expectations
2: on all business leaders and all businesses have been undergoing a dramatic change. And that's a big change in the world over the last several years, that there's more expectation for all types of organizational leaders to be engaged with, you know, often social or political issues that may be directly relevant to their businesses, but may go beyond their businesses. And also to be able to articulate and demonstrate you know, an alignment between what their organization is doing in societal well-being. And that's a very big change. And it applies to entrepreneurial leaders as well in a way that maybe a few years ago it didn't. Because, for instance, here in Silicon Valley, we felt pretty sheltered from lots of issues uh, outside of Silicon Valley. And I don't think that feeling is there anymore. Another example I would give there is around the relationship with government, that leaders today have to be much more attuned to the role of government in their industries. We certainly are seeing that in technology. And 10 years ago, that was just much less of an issue. So there have been some very big ongoing changes in the demands on leaders to be able to have a broader context for the organization and what it's doing. And that is uh, it's an important thing for us to be thinking about as a school, because we're trying to educate those leaders and prepare them to handle the sort of new things that are happening in the world.
0: You're listening to the NFX Podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these insights. Follow us on social at NFX and visit nfx.com for more content. And now back to the show.
1: Switching gears a little bit, you're not just the deed, you're also an economist. So maybe let's talk for a moment about macroeconomics. Like what's the state of capitalism now? And how do you see it potentially changing over the next 10 years or so? Okay, that's a big question. (laughs) 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 You know,
2: we are going through a period that is opening up questions about the macroeconomy, about the role of government, that in a sense were sort of settled for many years. So give an example, which is we went through the pandemic and we went through a major experiment with hugely increased government spending and deficits. And it was clearly needed because the economy got shut down with social distancing and COVID. But now we have a question of how long do we continue that? Should the government be permanently larger and play a bigger role in people's lives? Can we run deficits sort of out into the indefinite future? We might have to think about inflation, which is something that we haven't thought about in the U.S. in 30 years, 40 years almost. And so these are really big economic questions right now. I'm a believer that we do need smart regulation around technology, that we need to make investments in people and infrastructure. But I also look at some of the things that are happening right now, and I do think we're running some big experiments with an uncertain outcome. And if I was still spending a lot of time
1: doing economic research, there would be a lot to to work on right now. Sure. And also just the mass experimentation that we've seen going on as society through COVID. It's a fascinating Petri dish, both in economic policy as well as healthcare policy. You know, I think we're gonna come out of this with just fascinating insights of countries and communities that made different decisions and some were great, some were very different.
2: Absolutely. I think there's gonna be a lot to be learned looking back and looking at how different countries approached it. I think there's some very positive things that could come out. You mentioned the incredible advances that happened with the vaccines, but there were also things that have happened just from relaxing regulations, for example, during COVID, like allowing, for telemedicine and changes in care delivery that could have uh, really big effects on the healthcare system. And that, by the way, goes into smaller things, like you could eat outside and have a beer, And that's kind of a nice development, too. I hope we're not going to lose that when COVID ends. There's no doubt there's been some silver linings with COVID. Even, of course, there's been a lot of tragedy and challenge for so many people.
1: And then just on this notion around sort of capitalism and, you know, thinking about the August 2019 Business Roundtable letter declaring a new purpose of the corporation, do you see that it made any impact? And like, have you seen perhaps the pendulum's shift away from short-termism to a different perspective and measurement of corporation success and impact? And maybe just explain that letter for the audience.
2: Well, the Business Roundtable, that was a letter signed by many of the CEOs of the largest companies in the U.S. saying that the objectives of their business was to serve a whole range of stakeholders. That is, rather than the goal of the business being to maximize the returns for shareholders, the Milton Friedman view that has prevailed for many years, it was to think about not just shareholders, but employees and customers and the broader public and community communities. And some of that, of course, is just obvious that how could you run a business for the long term and not think about your employees and your customers and the area around you in a conscientious way? But it could also have been taken to be a statement that these CEOs and the companies were going to actually make more explicit trade-offs that would get resolved in favor of stakeholder groups who were not the investors. And I think the evidence on whether that has happened is sparse at this point. I haven't seen any systematic evidence that that has happened, although maybe one can point to some examples where it looks like employees were vocal and companies have moved in the direction of serving employees or customers or other stakeholders, but I haven't seen any systematic evidence. So I think the jury's out in some sense. I do think that just the way people have been talking about the objectives of business and the need to be attentive to different stakeholders, that's clearly changed. I mean, just clearly the nature of people's discussion has changed. And you have seen just in the last 12 to 18 months, lots of companies making commitments to social goals, things like zero net carbon emissions or more diverse hiring and promotions. And I think the question that everyone should be looking at is, is this going to happen? How will it happen? What trade-offs will need to be made in some cases, like to get to carbon net zero in order to get there? Will it be actually costly for shareholders? I think that area of thinking about corporate governance is just fast right now. And we have a number of classes where the students and the faculty are debating that. And I love sitting in on those classes and hearing people's thoughts because there's such a range of views. To what extent should businesses reorient their objectives? Should they or should they not? And what will the implications be?
1: Yeah, it feels that there has been, I mean, just from the entrepreneurship and business environment I'm in, that there's a shift from this being a moral imperative to being a commercial imperative, which is fascinating how, and quite rightly so, that this is in the best interest of shareholders, not just the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think a great example,
2: that's very interesting to see that in the entrepreneurial space. I think you see that with large companies. We saw with Exxon this week, the activist shareholders who were pushing for more focus on preparing for climate change and sustainability, and all the big institutional investors backed them up, and that ended up changing the board. I think we're likely to see more and more examples of things like that, and that is a profound shift in governance. And I like your way of framing it, which is there's certain things like thinking about sustainability or climate or diversity in your or employee population that people might have thought of before as a moral imperative, a moral thing to do, but they also may be really good business right now. That definitely changes the calculus for many organizations.
1: I'd love to learn a little bit about this new task force that you're building, like who's on the task force and why does it exist and perhaps what's broken or what needs advancing?
2: Yeah, so this relates closely to what we've been talking about. We've had a group of faculty and alumni and some students that I asked to think about uh, issues that are coming up at the intersection of uh, business and government and society and exactly these changes in the expectations for businesses and business leaders. You and I have been discussing the rethinking of the respective roles of government and business. I think really these discussions and debates that we're having now are being driven by a very fundamental question, which is, how is business going to produce the innovation that we need to address the big challenges of the coming century around sustainability and equality, ensuring opportunity, ensuring that the benefits of technology are widely enjoyed. And so this group has been meeting for some months and trying to survey the landscape of what are the changes that are going on and what are opportunities for us in our curriculum, in disseminating research and bringing people together. I think one of the interesting takeaways has been that the importance of ensuring a real diversity of viewpoints on many of these issues, that people naturally disagree. And it's important to capture that disagreement at a school, on a campus, and have a real diversity of perspectives. And that when we're in an area like Silicon Valley, where tends to be somewhat homogenous in terms of people's politics, that we need to push back against that and really try to get people talking and debating and listening to different opinions. And that's important as we think about who comes to the school, what the environment is like in classrooms, what kinds of events we're having and discussions. And there's been lots of discussion around that, lots of discussion around how can our faculty have more voice and impact with their research and ideas. So I'm looking forward, that group's been meeting all through the spring and excited to see the ideas that are surfacing and that'll hopefully be an important area for us to be investing in as an institution and moving forward. And can you
1: share who's on the task force?
2: That group has a set of faculty members from the GSB and also uh, a set of alumni and a couple of current students. It's being chaired by one of our alumni, Jim Coulter, who was the founder of TPG, and Ken Schatz, who's a political scientist on our faculty, who has for many years taught the first year with another faculty member named Neil taught the first year ethics class, which is a great class that is geared toward getting students to start thinking about and debating complicated
1: situations that they're going to face. As, uh, as organizational leaders. Oh, I'm sure. It's like a fascinating group looking to hear what comes out of that. You mentioned earlier about tech and regulation and the involvement that perhaps students today need to be more conscious of. Do you see as regulation and tech being good or bedfellows? It very much used to be that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs would go out of their way to avoid regulated industries or Washington, but it seemed like it's changing. Do you see some sort of reckoning happening?
2: For sure. Certainly for the large tech firms, there's just no question that they're coming under so much scrutiny. Some of it is about technology. So it's less about the individual companies and more about anxiety about technology. I think it was something like facial recognition and the deployment of cameras that might or might not happen in different places that would be able to track people and essentially surveil people. That's a case where the concern is in some sense about the technology. It's less about whether... The cameras are owned by one company or by many, many companies. Some of the other concerns, though, are about just the size and power of the largest technology firms. And when I think back over the history of the U.S., in certain ways, this is a little like the progressive era 100 years ago, where there was a lot of concern about the biggest companies. And that at the time was what led to things like the origin of antitrust and a lot of regulation and a big pushback. And I think there's some possibility that we are on the cusp of a similar type of shift in the relationship between the government and Uh, the biggest firms, which are pretty much all technology firms at this point. You know, that's really with the big technology firms, but I think even for smaller entrepreneurial companies, so many of the interesting areas that companies are getting started in that we've been talking about, healthcare, financial services, these are heavily regulated industries. So it's very difficult to start up a company without having some sense of the regulatory landscape and how that might impact the business. You know, that's different than some of the other areas that People have been innovating and starting companies in over the last 20 years. I do think that's a big change and an important one.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree that you know, what we're seeing entrepreneurs, you know, I think it's oversimplification. But you know, back sort of 10, 20 years ago, to be successful, you needed to have you know, a great product in a market to be successful. And then now I think the founders, and particularly the founding teams, are building these kind of multifaceted teams to tackle the interesting problems of today where you've got, you know, an amazing technologist meets an amazing person that can navigate regulation, that can, there's perhaps a deep domain knowledge in a particular space. And those are very complicated businesses to get going, but they construct these teams which tick many of these boxes because software alone is often not going to tackle these big problems that face us, and they need some of this deep domain expertise.
2: It's such a great point that you're making, and we often talk about the virtues of sort of interdisciplinary teams and what you get from that, but it's also hard to build teams where people, people come in with different expertise and backgrounds and get people to work together effectively and actually have an organization that works well. So there's a lot of excitement when you can bring together people with those different skills, but it's also hard and challenging to build companies that way.
1: So it sort of touches on this sort of notion about, I'm sure people from different sectors disagree when talking about the task force, that people naturally disagree. And it's certainly kind of when you have these collisions between different people in different disciplines, you often see that disagreement and that can be a spark for innovation. Is there a way that you can teach disagreement or debate? Is there any philosophy you have around that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you're raising two great points that really hit home for me. One is about if you've got a topic that people naturally have different views on, you know, and what we're talking about now, say the regulation of internet platforms is a natural. People have very different views about that. How do you structure a discussion so that you draw out differences of opinion and people debate, but they don't take it personally. It's about the ideas and people are curious. They want to learn. They hear something, someone say something that they don't agree with or they don't like, or maybe even offends them a little bit. They treat it as a chance to be curious. That's a really hard thing to do. You know, we have some faculty who are incredible at doing that in the classroom. That's a skill that is, it's a hard thing to do. And everyone has to work hard at that because it's partly cultural to be able to have that kind of discussion. The other point you're making, which I also really resonates with me, is about you know, collisions. And that just hits home for me so much right now, because having <laughs> run an educational institution through COVID where we did it remotely and through Zoom, that's the part that I missed and I think everyone missed was just the bumping into people and the sparks that happened, the collisions that happen on a physical campus. And those sometimes happen because you start arguing and debating and disagree with them, but they sort of just happen because you just start talking and someone says something, boy, that's a great idea. And that's you know, that's how companies get started. That's how
1: great research projects get started. That's how people learn. And boy, I can't wait to get back to that <laughs> in the fall. I hear you. Yeah, the serendipity of kind of hallway conversations or lunch tables or whether that's, you know, in companies or in campuses, can't wait for sure.
2: Absolutely. I think, by the way, that it connects to what we were talking about With remote work. I think for workplaces, can you figure out if you're going to have a more flexible workforce, more remote workforce? I think that's the ingredient or one of the ingredients that people have to figure out. Can you get that outcome from more virtual interaction? And, you know, no doubt it's there there are probably ways to do it, but that's something that people really need to be attentive to.
1: Okay. So we're nearing the end. Just a couple of quick fire questions. So, what are two or three books in your shelf right now that you'd wish startup fans would read as soon as possible?
2: So that's a great question. My reading is so uh, strange and eclectic but I'll give you a couple. I've been reading a book by a faculty member who's just about to join the GSB. whose name is Michelle Gelfine. She's written a book called Rulemakers and Rule Breakers. It's about cultural differences across organizations. It's a very interesting way of thinking about organizational culture. I'm reading another book that I don't know that it's necessarily going to help you run your business, but it's called Invisible China by a Stanford faculty member named Scott Rosell. And it's a fascinating book about some of the challenges that China is facing with uh, having a low-skill workforce. And it's made me think really differently about China. So that's always interesting. The last book I'm reading, which has nothing to do with entrepreneurship at all, but it actually touches on some of the things we've been talking about, is a biography of John Maynard Keynes who wrote a lot about both the role of government in times of crisis, the Great Depression, and about the relationship between economic policy and democracy. And that's much on the minds of many of us now, how we can have great, stable political institutions in this country.
1: Okay, I'll check those out on Amazon.
2: By reading it, as you can tell, it's all over the
1: place. I studied physics, but I'm an economist at heart. didn't teach good economics back in the day in England, but I'll check it out. But I hope they taught you Keynes, at least, so that they're... (laughs) You're also celebrating five years as the dean, so congratulations. Are there any couple of key things you've learned during that time?
2: Many things. You know, I think one thing I learn every day being a dean, and it's true of all academic leaders, is that you know people don't work for you at a university; you work for them. We have a pyramid structure of organization, but it's an inverted pyramid. You're at the bottom, and that's just a really important thing to keep in mind: that you're there to serve other people ultimately and to help them achieve their aspirations. That's what universities and business schools are about. I've learned a lot in this job about communication. I think the landscape for communication for organizational leaders has changed a lot, even just over a short period of time. And that's been a continuous learning for me. I would say most of all, I've been at Stanford now for 25 years as a student and a faculty member and changed my life as a student. And then I was fortunate to come back as a faculty member, but I came to the GSB from a different part of the university. So now I've been there for five years. And during that time, I've really learned to appreciate just how unique and extraordinary institution is. You got to experience it, of course, as a student, brilliance of the faculty and the energy and passion and the drive to action of the students and how that comes together. That makes this a great job that I've really enjoyed and look forward to the next years.
1: And as you think about the future of colleges or educational institutions, what might look different in 10 years' time?
2: That's a fabulous question. I do think this period of the pandemic has been by far, in my view, the period of the most innovation that has happened in decades, just in terms of everyone rethinking the way they teach, what's important, what matters, you know, what aspects of being together physically on a campus are really important and can't be replicated. Otherwise, we talked about that, the serendipity. What parts can be done really well online? What are different ways to engage people? And I think as a result of that year of kind of experimentation, innovation, forced, of course, not necessarily have asked for it, we're going to have a period of a lot of transformation in higher education. We're going to see much more opportunities for online education, for virtual types of education, for ways of connecting with people more across their lifespans opposed to just assembling them for short periods of time on a physical campus. And those are going to be great. We're in much need of innovation in higher education. We're a very slow moving industry. And this is going to be a really exciting period as we try to assimilate and deploy some of the things we've learned during the COVID
1: period. It takes pressure to make diamonds. And I think we've had a lot of pressure over the last 14 months or ago. And maybe just to finish on your first point about optimism, I think we all have a lot to be really optimistic for. So on that note, John, thank you for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on. And thank you so much for your insights and the organization that you run. Pete, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to get the chance to talk to you. Thanks again.
0: At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks, and feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.